You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Good afternoon, Podcast Detroit. This is Liz Reed, your resident guru here at Liz Life Guru, offering yet another podcast on life, learning, addiction, and just about anything else you can think of as far as mental health goes. Today, I have Shannon with me, who has been a guest with us a couple of times before. Good to see you, Shannon. How are you doing, honey? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me back. Uh, it's awesome to have you here. Uh, Shannon has her own private practice, an excellent perspective as an ex-addict as I am and alcoholic. We have a lot to talk about mm-hmm. in the addiction field, and we today both um, help anyone who's in the addiction program, attempting to get into the program, and the families that surround it, which tend to be um, pretty stressful for everybody who's involved. And a lot of families really don't know how to go about getting someone sober in the family. In a lot of occasions, they use the wrong type of premise. Um, they come at their family members in the wrong way. They do the wrong things. They're just trying to save their life. And in a lot of ways... Um, some of those ways, obviously, will not work out and others will. I mean, everybody has their own private journey through their addiction and their own outcome. Uh, both Shannon and I have been through it, come out the other end and prospered, and we are here to help others. Before we get started today, I do want to read a small disclaimer. The information in the podcast is for educational purposes only and is not meant to replace treatment or diagnosis by a qualified mental health professional, which is bullshit and I, but we are here on our own time to do something good for you. So, <clears throat> Shannon, what has your week been like with all your addicts you've seen this week? I know mine's <laughs> been pretty crazy. How's yours been? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been a handful. I think yeah. with the holidays coming up, oh, it yeah. causes a lot of uh, mm-hmm. extra drama or concern. Yep. Without a doubt, you know, I'm going to be doing uh, my next show is going to be on suicide and the holidays. But, you know, actually what needs to go into that as well is addiction. Mm-hmm. A lot of people relapse around the holidays. A lot of people think about taking their lives around the holidays because we have this huge huge buildup of this is the time we're supposed to be spending with our families, uh, long past gone memories, death of old uh, family members and friends, and it can be very maudlin and unhappy and sad for a lot of people. And I really try to impress on my patients, as I'm sure you do, to find your own tribe, find your own people, and try to create new and loving memories, right? Right. Yeah, things that make you feel better about yourself. So I know when you and I started talking, um, you mentioned that you'd been doing some reading on, which is the topic today, of forced rehab and willingness to go to rehab. Tell me a little bit about what, I I know what I was reading, and in my experience as well, that it kind of, it, it balances out just a little bit, May one may be a little bit better than another. I don't know. Um, in my opinion, I think that if we don't offer this to somebody, then they may never go. And you were saying the same, or sometimes it just turns them off completely. What would you think about that? Yeah, I do think it goes either way. It's probably somewhat independent, per, you know, per person. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I like, we. Um, I don't know if you always have the capability when you're in the midst of your addiction to be able to stop and have that you know, desire until usually it's not until the consequences become so severe that yeah. you're willing to do something. At least in my experience, mm-hmm. I would wait till I was backed into a corner and then kind of to appease everybody or be like, okay, okay. And to dodge any type of consequences from yeah. my family members, mm-hmm. then I would agree to go. Yeah. I know you and I had talked about that before. If there are too many, if there are no consequences, the addict is going to keep continuing the behavior, right? right? Um, like we were talking about with my other patient before I left the room, there's absolutely no consequences. It started out with death threats and then it went to just come home. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just come home, then I'm okay. And, you know, but everybody lives in this angry, ugly world and you become embroiled in part of the addiction, which is unhealthy for everybody. 
Right. Because nobody's going to get better through that. Um, you know, when I was looking at the research, a lot of what they were saying is that admitting as a family member or as an addict, admitting that there is a problem is the first thing. And, um, I mean, I remember when I admitted that there was a problem to me. I, I mean, I remember saying to myself, you know, this just can't go on. I just can't do this. I can't. I, I Why am I doing this? First of all, you know, because children, family, I don't have any children, but, you know, I have a stepdaughter, but, you know, family and so forth usually can't convince you of that. Do you right. remember a moment when you thought, like, you know, this is something I need to do? Um it's weird because I had always abused drugs since I can remember through high school and on, but I was functioning or quote maintaining. Yeah. And so it it wasn't an issue until um like even like with cocaine, I think I got to the point where I was so physically sick that I decided to stop, but it was no connection of like I'm an addict or anything. It wasn't until I started using heroin and then that was so extreme and everything spiraled. Um, and I was completely dysfunctional mm-hmm. that I realized, oh, my God, I, you know, I was addicted to this mm-hmm. heroin. And that was the problem. And even at that point, going into rehab, I didn't really I didn't have any intention of I was being prescribed Adderall and Clonopin. And, um, you know, I would trade it for Vicodin and smoke weed and still drink. And yeah, um, it was more like, OK, I just got to stop the heroin. That was too much. Yeah. Before I even so I never even realized that it was an issue. Mm-hmm. And we kind of go from one thing to another. Right. Um, I had a <clears throat> patient recently who was saying, well, I'm not doing crack right now. Mm-hmm. I'm just drinking. And I said, most all of my addicts mm-hmm. end up alcoholics and then die. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of how that goes. You know, they end up right. an alcoholic. They don't just stay there having one or two beers and, you know, that's the rest of their life. Right. You know, it always manifests into something else and they settle on alcohol usually. Yeah. I never had a problem, quote, with alcohol. Yeah. Or, um, it, you know, and it was never my choice. But of course, like I drank and partied. But I remember after getting out of rehab. And then awful, you know, being told, well, you can't have the Klonopin or Adderall or yeah. any of that. And so attempting this completely sober and I started drinking, which just because I, it was like that replacement. And at the time, yeah. I don't think I necessarily realized it or, you know, justified the fact that I was drinking the same as it, you know, yeah. just that I was taking the drugs. And I remember at a certain point um, pulling over to a party store and getting a pint by yeah. myself just sure. to um go sure. to work to change how I felt kind of a yep. where it dawned on me that I was like oh sure and I remember my girlfriend telling me bird that's my nickname <clears throat> she said uh you know you need to uh quit drinking vodka stop drinking vodka switch to wine remember right and so I switched to wine and the next thing you know I mean I'm buying bo- and I used to do wine tastings all the time so I really love good wines I loved wine tastings I think that's the only thing I miss about not drinking because that's a lot of fun and pairing it with foods because I was a chef for so many years and then I remember just you know going in the refrigerator and hitting the box and going oh my god I hit the box up a little hard last <laughs> night you know what I mean it would be like half empty and I just bought it that's a lot of wine in mm-hmm. one of those boxes with a spigot on it how embarrassing Thing, right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was that's how it rolled. And then I was like, OK, so I'm drinking twice as much to get the same high that I got from the vodka. So I'm just replacing one with another, one right. with another, one with another, you know, and there's no worse way out. Really, I, I don't think than being an alcoholic. That is just an ugly, ugly death. Right. That is. I mean, what it does to your body and your brain. And it just I mean, I have taken care of patients that were alcoholics that were literally bright yellow. Right. When they came in. Do you remember from Clearview? Mm-hmm. That one patient that was in there? I mean, if that doesn't scare you enough, when your liver's right. backed up that much and that destroyed that, your bright yellow, your eye whites are yellow. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I've had them come in just shaking, unable to walk. Right. It just doesn't work that way. And, and one of the things, you know, about owning that, you know, something's wrong, that you have an addiction, that something's, mm-hmm. that there's a problem is that you need your family to also understand this. And that what this is also about, what we're talking about today, is including the family in with the addict. Many families do not know what they're talking about when they're talking to their kids about addiction. Wouldn't you say there's a, a, well, this is a a stupid statement to even make, there's such a degree of denial when your child's addicted, when your loved one's addicted, your family, you know, somebody in your family's addicted. You just don't want to think about it. So for me to come to them and say, you need to educate yourself on addiction is just like, how dare you? Right. In a lot of ways. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, completely. Even um, from when I had spoke about being 
with staying with my ex who was in active addiction when I was clean, I had been there, done that, knew all the tricks and still um, was in denial and, and lying to myself about, you know, red flags and clear signs that he had relapsed or, yeah. you know, because you don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. And part of that, too, is then you have to acknowledge and follow through mm-hmm. with consequences and that whole you know, decision mm-hmm. is horrendous to have to make for a loved one. It, it is. And then, you know, if, and then if this is someone that you're dating, then you now become their mother. Right. Okay. And so this, this is makes the relationship even more toxic, you know, far more toxic right. than it was. I had a patient who recently told me that she, um, you know, tracked him on his phone, had a uh, picture waiting on her phone that would show what he looked like. Tracked the debit card, found out what bar he was at because she had a feeling, quote unquote, which is true because mm-hmm. you get the feeling, yeah. you know, when they're ready to roll, right? Mm-hmm. He had been drinking, took off in the car. She knew something bad was going to happen. Tracked him down at the bar, blah, 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 blah. They admitted that somebody at the bar said, yeah, I saw him leave with this woman, so on and so forth. She knew exactly who it was, went to the house, br- Basically, you know, bang the door in until someone else there opened the door and she walked in and found him in bed with another woman. And mm-hmm. um, that's not enough. That's not I mean, that's that's a that's you know, she might as well be a private detective. Right. I remember my family, though, even now talking about it, um, them saying in hindsight, we knew, but they couldn't prove it in between, um, you know, my clean time and when I had relapsed where mm-hmm. there were signs and there were flags and but they didn't have the concrete proof and of mm-hmm. course being as manipulative as i was and you play off of that and yeah um so there's it's that really fine line of you don't want to push them away and alienate them mm-hmm. but yeah. then and, and and but you know what they can get really nasty mm-hmm. really nasty i mean i've seen patients in there with their families just screaming at their mothers and fathers and me intervening and saying you're not going to talk to like that like mm-hmm. that to them in front of me you know, and then vice versa. I've seen the parents come at right. my patient like that, and I've said, you're not going to speak to them in that way. That's exactly why they're here, right. or this isn't helping the situation. And I think that's where it comes into having a calm, sedated type of talk with somebody that you're concerned about as much as possible, right? as you can. Well, that's why I think even like bringing in more awareness for the families, because they are so most, you know, it's so dysfunctional that even mm-hmm. if the addict has this awareness, goes to rehab and gets clean, This the play, the role that the family plays is still so dysfunctional, not even intentional, yeah. that they don't realize how they're, you know, playing a factor in them continuing to use or enabling or, exactly. quote, triggering them to go back out. Exactly. Kind of a thing. You have a young son. How old is he? Twelve. Twelve. How much information is given to him at school? Is there any kind of programs that are educating him exactly on drugs? He this he's in seventh grade and this year in his health class, which was only six weeks, there were two weeks of class that were so, you know, one out one hour period that was discussed hmm. about um drug use. Mm-hmm. And basically, um it was more focused on how to say no, I suppose, if you're offered yeah. a drink um at a party or your friends are smoking weed mm-hmm. kind of a concept. Yeah, and that's all the exposure that he's had. That like as far as school education, mm-hmm. very limited. Yeah, it certainly isn't enough. No. And you and I spoke last week. Um, one of my patients lost her nephew. Um, I'll explain a little bit about this story. This was this was crazy to heroin. Okay, so he's uh, addicted to heroin, overdoses. Um, they narcan him. They drag him to the hospital, and he's at the hospital. Um, he they re- revive him. After several shots of Narcan, they say, listen, you got to stay here for a little while. Well, you know, we're worried because it could, uh, I don't know, you may be able to go back into. Right. The Narcan stops working and your body is still so flooded with so much heroin. Yeah. You basically overdose again, but don't realize that it will happen because you didn't technically take more. Yep. Okay. And so that's what I was suspecting happened. And then, so anyways, they said you have to stay in the hospital and he wouldn't. And he was scared that the police were going to be called or he was going to be dragged into rehab. And so he took off, ran off, and his mother, who's also an addict, who's always, you know, trying to save him but can't save herself, right? She just came back into town. Um, let him get in the car with his fiance and their 14-year-old child that they have. They went home. He refused to go anywhere, went home. Um, he ate something, 
uh, sat around for a little bit, decided to go in and take a shower, and he was in there too long, went in and found him uh, passed out in the tub. He had hit his head when he fell down in the tub. Uh, they used several different shots of Narcan on him, and it was too late, and he passed away in front of my um, very sober patient's eyes. She has seen more trauma than you can imagine. Everybody in her family is addicted but her. God love her. And it's, you know, it's so hard on her emotionally. That's right. why she sees me. And so he died and left behind a family just grieving. And, and I know you lost somebody last week as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, so what do we do? You know, what do we do? We, you and I were discussing, we need to have more in place on how we can help these people or I don't know, force them into rehab, have the police called if they come in and they've been narcaned. I don't know. Is that right? Is that wrong? I don't really know. I mean, there's a whole, like you and I were discussing, some hot times we need to be forced to do something because we're thinking with a drug-addicted mind. We're not right. thinking clearly right. for ourselves. There's a lot of programs moving in the right direction. Like I work with Hope Not Handcuffs. Yeah. And I don't know if you discussed that. No, before. I know. Tell us about that. We've talked so about it briefly. It was actually a, um, a program that was piloted and started in a police station in Boston several years ago and was adapted in Michigan. Um it's been three years now. Uh-huh. So um, you can go into any police station and ask for, say, that you want um, to go into rehab. Okay. And so they will um, they will call what's considered an angel, a volunteer. They will come in and then assist you with getting into rehab. And so they've worked out with the, di- with the um, rehabs in the local areas that you basically get president um, for calling with them through that program. And okay. the goal is to get you in immediately right then and there. Yeah. Most of the time it works out. Um, sometimes it, there may be a small amount of waiting time, mm-hmm. but if you call like on your own to go in, it's like a 10 to 14 day waiting list. And the police station has also agreed that they will not, um, they will not arrest you the, unless you have, um, you're absconded from parole yeah, on a violent, um, mm-hmm. even with even regular probation or any kind of um, warrants, as long as it's not a um, a felony violent okay. offense, wow, that's they good. will not um, do anything at all. And they um, allow you to go into rehab. So, so, so this is actively going on now here yeah. in Michigan? Mm-hmm. Right on. So, it is, so anybody can go to any police any department? Any police station at any time, day what, or night. <clears throat> when was this brought into effect? Um, Made into law. It was the um, 2000 or well, January of 2017 was the first um, the program was opened. I guess it mm-hmm. started at the sheriff's department in uh, underneath the jail. What is it in Mount Clemens? Okay. And it's now um, in every police station. I know Macomb County, Oakland County, Wayne County, and even now further up north and. Um, well, I need to really investigate that mm-hmm. since I'm in Lapeer County. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's available in Lapeer. It as is. Well. It is. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is wonderful. Yeah, and so that helps with alleviate. I mean, it's hard. Only honestly through word of mouth, I think too that it's become okay for that. Like the addicts yeah. hear each other and know that they're not going to get arrested because yeah. that's the biggest fear. fear. Of course, walking into a police station, you're going to say, you know, screw that kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Mm-hmm. But um. Where they just honestly, they don't do anything and they just call and you have yeah. the angel comes in and helps get you in. And then we've also partnered with, um, well, one with MedStar. And so they will provide transportation to the rehab, which is another issue because getting them there safely, they're very manipulative in the whole, mm-hmm. they want to go, but then that last second, you know, how yeah. that is, you know, well, they got to stop here or do that where they'll manipulate family members into mm-hmm. one more time. Let me just use kind of a concept. So then you, yeah. you, it relieves the family members of actually getting them to the rehab. So, you know, they're transported there safely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're partnering with um, hospitals currently um, as far as if you get brought in for an overdose, you're supposed to one, it's supposed to be, it's, this is in process of being mandated that a social worker um, is to report and speak to you before you, you know, you're, I guess, legally mm-hmm. released from the hospital. Mm-hmm. I suppose you can still get up and walk out on your own at any accord, you sure. know, time. Yeah. But that, and then they would help and offer this program and arrange services to direct, to transport you directly mm-hmm. to a rehab facility once you're, men, um, mm-hmm. fit, you know, stabilized sure. to go into a you program. Know, you know, what's kind of interesting too also is, um, 
another patient, um, uh, works for one of the big three. And, um, so he's an alcoholic and they've put him in and out of rehab. I can't tell you how many times. Mm -hmm. And so I met with him the other day and it was more of the same. Uh, I don't want to work the program. Don't want to be involved in AA. I want to do this on my own. Um, I've got, um, all I have to do is do this. I would manage to dodge a bullet. I can't be fired. Um, because I have you know, some rollover of hours and some, you know, thing that the union put together, which is great for people who are responsible mm-hmm. and not for people who have an ongoing addiction right. because he's utilizing it. He knows exactly how many days he can binge, how many days he can take exactly. off, what he can do, how he can get around it, how he can work mm-hmm. it, you know. And so one more time, he's back in rehab in and, in and out, in and out. You know, I don't see that working. That's not working. He's not getting the memo. There are no consequences. I mean, there's this disciplinary layoff that you can get, but mm-hmm. he managed to avoid that because he came back, um, I don't know, so many hours before that went into effect or right. something. But, but I see nothing but a, but a spiral, a death spiral, right, uh, into death. It's, he's not going to stay sober. Right. Well, if he would channel all that energy he put into working around the system yes. to make it work in his benefit to actually get and access the help he needed, mm-hmm. he would have the opportunity and time to take care of himself. Yeah. That's part of the problem too mm-hmm. of making it your number one priority no matter what. Sure. And that's another thing that, you know, you and I were talking about is, you know, owning it. Own mm-hmm. you know, do you do you know that you have a problem? I you know, in a lot of ways, I don't even think he thinks he does after mm-hmm. being in rehab seven or eight different times. I just like to drink. I'm like, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your girlfriend. You're going to lose everything. Right. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. You know, and then a few weeks will go by, a month or two, and then we're right back where we started. I mean, that is one of the conundrums of like, so what do we do now? Open up a big can of whoop ass and like say, (laughs) you have nothing, you must. I don't know. I really, it's confusing. It's difficult. Right. What is the right answer there? You know, I mean, and that was what I was asking you. You know, we were talking about AA, mm-hmm. which I was completely engrossed in when I got out of mm-hmm. uh, um, detox and release right. is what I was in. And then I went to IOP, mm-hmm. which is intensive outpatient for those of you who don't know what right. that is. That is an intensive program where you're there four hours a day, like four days a week. It's super intense. So you're embroiled in your thoughts and feelings and your addiction and how you feel. And I went to every, you know, 90 me- meetings in 90 days. Mm-hmm. I continued with that. Plus, I got a therapist because... When I got sick and I was in the hospital or in the hospital, I was like, I don't ever want to do this again. Mm -hmm. This is a nightmare. You know, this is horrible. I don't ever want to be in this place. So I asked, what do I do to make sure I don't ever come back? Well, you've got an ABC. And I listened to what they had to say. So the program was extremely beneficial for me, extremely beneficial. And I get this, this, you know, defensive push from a lot of patients right. that are like, I don't want to be part of that cult. I don't want to get into any of that, but you know, I don't like it, all the religious aspects to it and so forth. You know, and I, it sometimes it's very difficult to drive that, that home to them that this, you need this support. You agree right. with that, right? It's yeah. desperately needed. Yeah. I think that was a huge turning point. Um, cause I just didn't know what to do. As you know, when I finally reached that um, determination that I was an addict in all aspects. And like I said, you know, I okay, I was like, first the heroin. OK, I got that. I can't do. But then yeah. the slow realization that I was going to seek out something else to fill that void or, you know, mm-hmm. with whatever it was mm-hmm. that um, gave me support and structure. Mm-hmm. But there's also I think the main difference in someone that succeeds or doesn't is that sense of resilience. Mm-hmm. And like you say, you reached out, you asked, you followed the suggestions. Yes. So they're there and you have to actually apply them. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, there's always an excuse if you don't want to follow through yep. or you don't want the help of where they throw that. Um, it's a God program and, yep. and whatnot. And if you actually read the literature that, you know, Bill W wrote, it is, far more spiritual Mm -hmm. and just seeing outside of yourself and understanding that you within your own self don't have the answers because your best thinking quoted by him is what Mm -hmm. got you here. Sure. You know, Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. Um, and it was written in the late 20s. You know, I mean, that is when um, people went to church every Sunday. If you didn't mm-hmm. go to church on Sunday, something was wrong with you. You were, right. you know, you weren't a pillar of the community. You were a heathen. And right. that's how it rolled back then. This is 2019 now. Things are different. And that's right. understandable that you don't want this, maybe this religious component to it. But And it's whatever. not even religious. Yeah. I, I think it's very misconstrued and that's used as an excuse for people that don't understand and have not actually read or yep. applied the literature. Yeah. And it's it's human too. So as as far as even seeking out what groups are more effective and helpful by the people that attend them and whatnot, you know, human nature yeah. takes over and there's different elements that come into play. Especially I think ego plays a huge issue in mm-hmm. the destruction of some of the negative aspects of the program. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the essence of what it you know it was created and written is yeah, a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing, and it has a tremendous success mm-hmm. rate, which is super important. Mm-hmm. And you know, the thing of it is, is that when we first start talking to an addict or dealing with an addict, everybody wants to come at them, come at mm-hmm. them hard, come at you know, and that's not exactly what they need. And the last thing you want to do is give them any empathy because you've been through hell yourself. And so, but so have they. Right. And when you're talking to somebody who's truly addicted to drugs or alcohol, they aren't thinking clearly. Their brain is remapped straight to the dopamine mm-hmm. center. You know, they are, they don't have any concept. Their frontal lobe is half dead. Right. They don't, their decision making is out the window. So you're talking to the drug. Right. You're not talking to who they are as a real person. And and I've mentioned this, that people will say, I just want, you know, my same child right. back. And that's not what you're going to get back. So you need to own that and know that now. Right. That's not going to happen. And people will say that about AA or any type of addiction program or going to rehab. It's a cult. It's it's just like a cult. I mean, I'm not into that. I, I want to think for my own. I want to, you know, be my own person. And, and I'm like, <laughs> I hope it is a cult. Because you're not thinking straight. Right. This is not normal the way you're thinking. You need to think cult-like in a straight mind. And then eventually go off into whatever you feel. Like you and I both, you know, I don't attend meetings anymore. I mean, I would be opposed to it. Right. But there isn't anything around me. Right. But, um... I mean, I would. I it's it's not something that I need right now. I have my whole right. my own gig that I do. But it serves its purpose. Yes. And I think the whole essence of the program too is is strictly to remove you from that self centered mind frame. Yep. And when you are in an addiction, um, you ha- that you have no other perspective than to a self centered perspective. And mm-hmm. So the ability to remove that that concept of getting outside of yourself, one addict helping another, um, yeah, is where you start to have that. Um, larger perspective and even that feeling of self-worth or purpose by um, doing simple things that they suggest of a service position, being accountable, yeah, you know, having people that you can, that know, understand your struggles and you can talk about and, you know, only you can, you know, how it is at tables and such the things sure. we laugh about and speak about that yeah. anybody else would be appalled or just wouldn't get that yes. go through your head that you can say mm-hmm. and not, you know, not not feel judged. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. I mean, it's about being around the same people that Mm -hmm. have been through it, been there, done it without feeling like you're being judged. Right. You know, I think it's like a tremendous benefit. And then like for myself, it served its purpose while it, like I, you know, where I went daily, like you said, 90 and 90, Mm -hmm. I know like the first year, I think I was, it was almost daily that I was going and it gave me that foundation and that structure. Mm -hmm. And then I started to actually be able to have that open-minded perspective Mm -hmm. and that higher level Mm -hmm. um, thinking. And then trying, you know, found out who I really was and started putting my eggs in different baskets. Yeah. And that's what I think the end goal was of now I, I know who I am and I started doing you know, different activities that I actually enjoyed. And that's what helped. I think sometimes the negative perspective of the program is people um, that it becomes all that they are. And like the only way that they identify as themselves. And those people have a tendency to be judgmental and ego driven within the program Mm -hmm. that will um, give all other people that are struggling a negative, you know, sure concept of it with the whole. Yeah. And there's people in there that have to go till the day they die every day or they will never be able to maintain sobriety. And God bless them for that. You know, that is a rough one. But there's a lot of people who do have to. They can't. They just can't survive unless they are there every day. See, and I think that's part of it is um, I read this quote the other day, but it pertained of 
Uh, basically like plants, how each plant is different. Some need water every day. Some need water once a week. Some yeah. need direct sunlight. Some need shade. Mm-hmm. Whereas every person's different. So yeah. that at least gives you an opportunity to stay and remain sober for a long enough period of time to figure out what you need and what works for you. Mm-hmm. So like you said, I, you know, you don't go now. Like, um, I will, I'm not opposed to, but I have other things that I do. Um, yeah. That, uh, that serve that same purpose and fulfillment and keep me, you know, clean and sober. Um, where some people say, you know, that they have to go every day. And yeah. I think that's a deterrent of like, once you get to the point where you don't feel that you need to go every day, but you're being judged or people will say, um, where you been? Yeah. Or like make comments yeah. like it's not okay to yes. kind of branch out or have any other kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, like I was told that by a sponsor for years, excuse me, that I wasn't working a good enough program. I wasn't doing this. I wasn't doing that. Well, I wasn't going to meetings daily, but I was in my master's program and I was taking care of my child and his needs were met. And I, you know, had all these other outside activities. So I was doing what I needed to do. But from her perspective of going every single day, um, that wasn't good enough. And that really messed with my head mentally. Sure. You know, and yeah. you see people that do get stuck in that. Um, well, at least I didn't use today mentality. Yeah. And so it can deter your growth and that kind of aspect of sure. kind of just staying, you know. Oh, or- yeah. <clears throat> and I had I had somebody who said that also who said um, that she had gone to a meeting <laughs> And there wasn't an NA meeting there, but there was an AA meeting. And the lady said, hey, I think we should all vote on if she should even be allowed to be here. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. There's a large divide between AA and NA, and it's getting worse. Whereas I know someone told me that the lady or the table was offended because she identified herself as an addict and not an alcoholic. And even you'll hear like, and I just said it myself, the clean and sober. Like there's this differentiation between you're an addict and it doesn't matter what substance it is of course yes. there's differences in the, you know mm-hmm. as far as you know a heroin addict versus an alcoholic but mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. the end of the day we it's all the same pain and the same path it to is. stay clean or you know yeah recover. and then a lot of people you know <laughs> will also hear on occasion um well more than on occasion mom or dad you know it's nothing but addicts there that have drugs mm-hmm. and you know i don't want to be around that right. they're pushing drugs everybody there is getting high and this and that and and yes you are allowed to come to a meeting a little buzz i mean that's they do right. we embrace everybody but um i have never in my time of going to meetings ever had anybody offer me drugs it is a double-edged <clears throat> sword. I think there's far more structure within the AA program mm-hmm. um, and people that have maintained longer-term um, sobriety. And I myself, found, like, I started going to AA meetings or NA meetings because I was a heroin addict and I, yeah. and I you know, quote, didn't have any problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And there is a bit more um, of a chaos within that, um, the way that that... Um, the mm-hmm. NA is uh, structured and functions. Mm-hmm. And um, the first time I relapsed was because I was driving a girl to and from a meeting together. And I was like five months sober and she was not, but I was ignorant and naive. And, you know, she had made the comment, I'm sick. Will you get me something? And yeah, you know, that was enough to, so there is a, like that double edged sword as far as, but that was me seeking out the wrong people also. And I, mm-hmm. my intentions of going were to, which cute boys were going to be at what meeting and what I was going to wear and that Mm -hmm. kind of concept. So it all, once I made the decision that this, that using wasn't an option, no matter what I found the people that I needed to and gravitated towards the ones that had what I wanted Mm -hmm. and, and it served its purpose. So, Mm -hmm. and you're very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You're very vulnerable for quite a long Mm -hmm. time. I mean, I've described it as as somebody stripping a scab off my entire body and just, I swear to God, I walked around for three months Mm -hmm. at least shaking internally 
just shaking. Everything was so bright. Every room was so bright. Everything was so loud. I was just like, you know, all the time. I was like, oh, God, this is horrible. (laughs) You know, this is horrible. But we can't even clearly understand what's going on with our brain until it starts to to remap to its normalcy. Right. I mean, if I think about it, I've used drugs or alcohol, God, since sixth or seventh grade, something. Right. I mean, I was smoking weed for sure in seventh mm-hmm. and eighth grade. In sixth grade, I think right. we were sneaking booze after parents' cocktail parties and stuff like that. And, you know, not getting wasted, but at least trying it. Right. You know, it was, it was, it was pretty normal. It was pretty normal until it got to be too much. Right. You know, as time goes on, which is scary. Right. <clears throat> you know, I bet you worry about that with your son. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Just who's he around? You always exactly. have that suspect of like, I don't know, I got a bad feeling about that kid. Right. And just, yeah, I constantly just am extremely, um, as brutally honestly, you know, as I can be with him mm-hmm. about everything mm-hmm. because I don't want, you know, you know, fall in the same track that with, I did. For sure. And in, there's only so much you can do too, right. because you don't want to smother him. He's got to have his right from wrong right. ideas. Right. But I, yeah, at least he can be informed and knowledgeable Mm -hmm. and have an accurate picture you know what went on even just what i went through and the consequences of it and Mm -hmm. even you know like when i had lost my best friend and was grieving like he was fully aware of what happened and Mm -hmm. even ongoing as you know because it happens all the time i lose people on a weekly monthly basis Mm -hmm. to overdose or Mm -hmm. you know consequences of yep And the truth is the best thing with your children, Mm -hmm. as much as age appropriate, right? Right, exactly. So we're talking about a very small child recently um, whose father's in and out of her life, uh, in and out of heroin. Now he's not calling. He used to call. He's not calling now because he Mm -hmm. ran out of rehab as usual, blah, 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 same old thing. And I said, explain to her that there's that he's not because I'm sick of telling her that he's sick. He's right. sick. He's, yeah. He think, and yeah, she's thinking that's like the flu or he's in the hospital mm-hmm. or something like that. Just, you know, just merely pointing to your head and, and saying sick, not thinking correctly and doing whatever he needs to do to take care of himself right now. She's only four. So he's not feeling right up mm-hmm. here and he needs to get that organized before he can start talking to you again. But right. he, no, he's not in a hospital. No, he's not physically ill. Right. He is, things are going wrong up here. That type of age appropriate thing. So a child doesn't think they're perpetually right. laying in a hospital or have the flu. But it's so hard to understand because you, you know, you were my therapist at yeah. Clearview. And when yeah. I brought Tyler there for the yeah. weekends, um, and he was what, four, I believe. Yeah. Um, young, definitely younger. And, how do you explain? Because that's, I think, was the kind of key term of mommy's sick. And that's what they yep. would use. And on, honestly, I tried to detox, self-detox at home at my parents' house and whatnot. So I was physically sick. But coming there, at that point, I was out of detox and, quote, you know, I looked good. Yeah. And majority of the people around me, they didn't look physically ill. Mm-hmm. So trying to understand that concept, like, yeah. Um, I'm not okay to come home with you, even though you see me as sure. physically well and, yeah. you know, um, okay. Yeah. That differentiation, especially when they're younger, is mm-hmm. very difficult. Well, and that's the other thing that I kept saying is, do you just make sure that she knows that this has nothing to do with right. her? Exactly. Nothing. I think is um, huge that we don't realize that the kids take it all internally. I had a client that shared um, she's been struggling and her daughter's with the sister now and is two or three years old and said um, some comment to her randomly. She's now has like supervised visitation. Like um, mommy, I promise I won't oh, uh, something about I her tablet that. or I won't oh, I do that, that again. I promise you, I won't if you just let me stay with you. And you know, the mom had no idea that, that she was even thinking that or had yeah. made this little correlation in her, you know, in her head. Mm-hmm. That is just gut wrenching. Right. Because that's that's when you and I will see those kids in our chair exactly. 10 years later, right? 10 or 11 years later, because they think that their parents didn't love them, you mm-hmm. know, and they have abandonment issues and all those kinds of things. And it has absolutely nothing to do with them. Right. Absolutely nothing to do with them. It, it's It's incredibly sad. It's incredibly sad. So if we're talking about, well... One of the, you know, the many different things about is AA uh, or a, excuse me, not AA, but forcing someone into rehab mm-hmm. and not forcing somebody into rehab. 
I mean, in my perspective, as you and I were talking, sometimes they can't see the forest through right. the trees. You know, I mean, if somebody had said to me, Liz, you know, stop drinking right now. I remember specifically saying you can go to hell. Right. I, you know, there's no way I'll, I'll move out. I'll do whatever. Right. I'm going to keep drinking. <laughs> no one's going to tell me that. And then <clears throat> it wasn't even a year later that I was like, I will never put another drop of alcohol or anything in my body as long right. as I live. So how did that happen? Right. That was some amazing mental transformation Mm -hmm. of clarity or I don't know what the hell it was, but slowly but surely, as it states in a lot of the documentation, and we've seen patients do this before, I was starting to weigh like, do I really want to have a drink or do I not? Seeds are planted along the way. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, just that thought of, you know, like driving to go get more and think, I don't want to do this, God, I don't want to do this. It's the last day I'm going to, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm done tomorrow. And of course, the next day, that same, even in having that mind, oh, like, oh, this, I, I can't stop. That's, I'm going to have to go to rehab. But I didn't make the choice to or tell anybody because I was still, you know, mm-hmm. just stuck in that addiction frame of, even though those thoughts were there. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have, I guess, the mental capability to stop and actually, um, go to rehab especially because they're you know when there's not severe consequences i was Mm -hmm. quote maintaining everything in my life and appeared from the outside nobody knew kind of a functioning yeah Mm -hmm. and um it wasn't you know several times though when i was backed into the corner and threatened by my parents yeah um you know Mm -hmm. and using my son as leverage then Mm -hmm. um i agreed to go sure Sure. And it served its purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things. So if you keep going, hopefully you benefit from it right. and eventually you do get sober. So there's no right or wrong here. Right. You know, it, 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 whether forced or not, at least you'll have some clarity for a little while to think right. about what you're doing. Right. Yeah, because I hear that, um, oh, well, they have to want it. They have to, you know. Well, they do, they but. They do. <laughs> yeah. But to, you got to like, get them there first. Yeah, give them, like, I think that the <laughs> mm-hmm. difference of, um giving them a chance by the force placed. Um, yeah. It's not a guarantee and everybody's journey is different. And I honestly, I don't even know really what that differentiating factor was yes. the last time that like you said, where mm-hmm. I was like, I was just absolutely done. And it was mm-hmm. just a whole weird shift that happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it took a decade and what the difference was. Sure. Cause it, at that point, honestly, it probably wasn't even the consequences that wasn't the lowest I'd ever been, but somewhere along the way I learned enough and picked mm-hmm. up enough things and, Mm-hmm. Where if I was never exposed, you know, yeah, <clears throat> for sure. I I mean, I know. I let me see. I started thinking about getting sober in the early nineties. I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I admired people who didn't drink and could go could go out. I I thought they were like like incredible people, gods. Mm-hmm. How can you do that? You know, and still have a good time. And I'm that person now, which I never thought I would be. But I mean, I thought about it for twenty years before I ever got sober, until right. I was finally like, this is just stupid. There, I, I'm worth more than this. And I think I mentioned my brother Danny, who was a heroin addict, you know, at a young age. He felt the same way. He mm-hmm. had that small shred of self-respect that was like, what am I doing? Right. You know, what in the hell am I doing? You know, on that note, I wanted to mention something that I just saw this on TV the other day. Have you heard of it? Sublicade? What it's is an it? extended, it's, it's called Sublicade. It's an extended release, uh, bupropofene. Have you ever heard of it? No, I have not. It's a new medication, which buprofen subutex, right. correct? Okay, correct. <clears throat> so it's um, it or not subutex? It's uh, um, suboxone. Sub, uh, no, 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 subutex. Sorry, okay. I'm losing my. Uh, I'm. <laughs> I was getting it wrong. Okay, so anyways, um, but it's extended release because I found quite a few. I, I was amazed to see this on TV because we have a lot of patients that are using um, suboxone. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, they're using it for long term instead of temporary. Right. How do you feel about that? Suboxone was never intended <clears throat> to be used long term. It I was know. used as an, an aid and a device to um, lessen the severity of withdrawal symptoms to enable somebody to actually stay in rehab and get through it mm-hmm. um, and not leave. Mm-hmm. That was at five to seven days yep. tops. Um, yep. It is actually harder and worse to get off of suboxone especially after long-term use than it is to kick the heroin of that takes all three to five days as far as a severe physical symptoms is it as bad as methadone 
No, methadone is even worse. Yeah, methadone's really bad. I've seen my patients go through hell with that stuff. That's beyond, um, definitely beyond worse. Yeah. The Suboxone, there's um, such a high abuse rate as far as, because you're not addressing any of the issues or any of the problems. It's literally just giving somebody a synthetic form of heroin as far as, here, take one pack in the morning, one in the afternoon, (laughs) and one before you go to bed. Yeah. And if I couldn't manage my addiction in the first place, what makes you think I'm going to manage that? Mm -hmm. You know, that they're majority of people are selling them if there's a hot commodity on the streets for it and they're just you know able to sell it and get what they want instead Mm -hmm. or um it's a crutch to where you can go out and use and party for a week or two getting the dope that you want and then go back to um having the suboxone as like kind of like a fallback Mm-hmm. And as far as just your the way that your brain is structured and the um, is not able to repair, you're literally yeah. remaining in a state of addiction. And if yeah. that's the case, my frontal lobe is not redeveloping. I'm still not able to make critical um, yep. decisions and have mm-hmm. rational thinking mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that whole concept. And I see the argument it's better than going to a dope house or what people do um, sure. in desperate needs to um, obtain the drug of the you know especially with the heroin mm-hmm. and crack mm-hmm. but it's not a, it's not a solution as far as like long term because mm-hmm. your brain's not healing you're not learning any other coping mechanisms you're still um, a slave to the <laughs> drug. drug yeah and that's you know you so. can't take a trip anywhere unless you have it you exactly. can't it, you, can't, you do can't do anything. anything i know um this patient well i'm well first of all this once again leads me to pharma which is my big problem i got Ugh. a big problem with pharma okay pharmaceutical companies and the way they push and perpetrate mm-hmm. um addiction are extremely are mis- misleading information with, as well out of doubt and this giant opiate uh um problem mm-hmm. that we have in the united states right now that is taken away hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of young adults that we're going to f- see the effects right. of this in not too long, right. not too near future where there is going right. to be nobody. You're either going to be 50 or you're going to be 80. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, you know, right. it's going to really affect this country drastically. Right. And now when I saw this on TV, I was just sick to my stomach. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Right. Now we're going to supply extended release. Well, let's make money off of the addiction recreated. Exactly. And that's why I don't understand what's being questioned. There's just the MAP program, the medically assisted um, treatment programs Mm -hmm. now, which is pushing the Suboxone clinics and that the pharmaceutical companies are the one that created this open, you know, the opioid epidemic in the first place because they were extremely misleading with the medications that they were giving to the doctors. Like when the Oxycontin came out and those, um, they acted like it was a substitution for and um, so much better than other um, yeah. pain relievers. And mm-hmm. then because it didn't have the Tylenol in it and such as like the Vicodin yeah. and said that it wasn't habit forming. It wasn't addictive. Well, come to find out it's 10 times worse. And then yeah. now even through the progression of that, that understanding, people were now cut off prescriptions and that's why they're turning to heroin or they couldn't sustain the to pay for mm-hmm. the pills any longer. And that's where the heroin came into place. And that's yep. why the streets are flooded with that. Mm-hmm. And so now the same pharmaceutical companies we're supposed to trust and believe that this medication is going to help. And they already have <laughs> piles of research. These suboxone clinics, they don't work. There's no um, credibility as far as how to, how do you monitor and keep somebody for legal purposes, when you're put on Suboxone, the doctor's under a requirement to follow mm-hmm. a series of steps to take to make sure that you're, quote, safe. Yes. So when you are abusing and you come in and you drop dirty for Suboxone and crack and weed or whatever else mm-hmm. you're doing, there's no real protocol that can be followed as mm-hmm. far as when I was doing the research program at Wayne State, it was as long as you maintain you were doing better than the month prior so if you, out of 28 out of 30 days, drop dirty for other substances, you could stay within their program. And like that was a methadone clinic. So yeah. people would purposely get methadone so they didn't have to pay for the heroin, get that high, and then have money for crack. Yeah. So out of 28 days, you drop dirty for everything else, say out of 30. The following month, if you did 27 out of 30, mm-hmm. that was considered progress. And yeah. And you, it's inhumane to cut somebody off of it the medication because they're physically addicted to it. So yes. what do you do when you, um, when they're abusing it or they're taking other medication or other drugs still 
kind of a concept. It's a chasing your tail type situation. So this person that I, one of my patients that um, had been off heroin, been off crack cocaine, which was her drug of choice, and was just completely sober. She was supplementing with a little bit of alcohol, which I was very alarmed Mm -hmm. at, getting really nervous about. And then was like, well, I just got to wait till I get on the Suboxone program. I just got to get back on the Suboxone program. And I'm like, why? Why? You haven't had anything in how long? You know, two months? Why? Well, I just feel better. I just feel better. You're supposed to feel uncomfortable. Exactly. Okay, you're supposed to be uncomfortable. You need to get your ass to a meeting. You need to do more to better yourself, to feel better. You need to find, as you were saying, outside interests, things that take your mind off stuff. Develop new neural pathways that create a life for you. We're not all supposed to be sitting around going, wow, man, I'm chill and mellow all the time. I don't ever want to be uncomfortable. That you, it's a process being extremely uncomfortable, but an addict never wants to wait for that. Well, that I think was the pivotal turning point was I, I was, I was constantly replacing the addiction with something different, whether it was, you know, shopping to at one point, even shoplifting to boys, whatever. Sure. Um, it wasn't until everything was removed. I was forced to find the answer from within like that. It was that um, wired way of thinking, I need to change how I'm feeling. I need to alter. I'm not okay. Yes. And so I would seek it in any way, shape, or form. And that's what the Suboxone perpetuates Mm -hmm. is that Mm -hmm. I'm not okay. I don't want to feel this way. I need to feel different. Absolutely. How would I mean, it's absurd because you being an alcoholic, it would be the same thing as saying, I'm going to give you three shots a day. And be okay with, you know. Sure. Like, yeah. how is that an answer and a solution? To- sure. Absolutely. And the other thing is, for our audience, a clear determination that you come from a fucked up family or something's wrong or there's dysfunction or something's going on. Like in this particular incident, I'm like, and not addressing your mental health mm-hmm. issues, right? And I address this and said, um, excuse me, two out of two children in a family are addicted or three, or four out of a family are addicted. Something was going on in that house, in your life, that created this. It wasn't just a roll of a stone. I mean, it really doesn't usually work that way. If there's more than one person in a family that, yeah, you'll have one rogue family member who, you know, has trouble, right? But if there's several, you know, there's usually something going on. So there's a lot of addiction Mm -hmm. in my family, not horrendous anymore, but a lot of it came from the pain and loss of our father dying Mm -hmm. at a young age, you know, he, and, and so, you need to be aware of that. So if you think that you need to take something in order to make yourself feel better all the time and you don't want to feel the pain of what's really going on in there, you're never going to get better. Right. You're never going to wake up one day and say, I just want to feel the agony of getting off Suboxone or Methadone. Ever. And I'll be okay. It's not going to work that way. Right. And it's hard to properly address and get to the core root and all the under understand all of that when you're still numbing yourself with the medication daily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's covering that up. It's just a defense that's covering up our core emotions that we don't want to deal with. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of patients feel like I'm just going to implode. I'm going to explode. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, simply die if I tell you. Mm-hmm. You know, if I tell you that, I don't know, I hated myself in the third grade that my mother always told me I was fat or, you know, sometimes it's things that you and I would just not even blink an eye at, but it has devastated their emotional growth throughout their Mm -hmm. life. You know, and then, of course, yes, there's a lot of horrendous families, you know, that have been through horrific abuse and sexual abuse and so forth. And, you know, that's understandable. But in a lot of cases, it could just be a tone, no love, no affection, no hugging or whatever it may be. But you have to be aware of that and fix that in order to keep yourself sober. That's why I got a therapist. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that's what helped the most, too, is the conjunction of everything together, because if you don't address that. You're never going to heal. Mm-hmm. And it, you'll find something different and yep. just keep staying. You know, you're staying in that same state of mind and you're you're forced not to have to seek out the um, core issues when you're on, a, you know, medication like that. Yeah. Your core wounding pain uh, that is affecting you and making you feel worse and is making you um, hurt. Mm-hmm. deeply. And once that's solved, then you can start to grow and right. feel better. So I think both you and I would agree that a forced rehab 
is super important. I mean, if you can get somebody in there right. and you can get them in there and you can force them to do go in to at least get a better perspective on their life and their circumstances right. and at least think clear-minded for a while is going to be helpful. If they go willingly, God bless them. It's right. a wonderful thing. Then where our outcome is twice is bound to be twice right. as good. But uh, do something. Right. You've got to do something, sitting, enabling, offering money, giving uh, your child or loved one the benefit of the doubt, letting them shit all over the family and drag you all down with them. That's no way to go. Right. You know, the most important thing is to do something. Right. Anything, right? We'd agree with that. Definitely. Um, the holidays are coming up, so this is going to be ugly for some people. <laughs> it's going to be positive for others, but find your own tribe and be happy. Do the best that you can um, to enjoy yourself. If there's family members that are toxic to you, stay away. Right. Just because they're family doesn't mean you have to be there. You know, get some people around you that you love right. and enjoy. That's and the most important thing. That's one thing the program is good for. I know with during the holiday times, um, there are meetings and marathons 24-7. Especially around Christmas, Christmas yep. Eve, New Year's Day. Yep. And yep. that helps. And they have food and a good mm-hmm. time, and it's free, right. all free. Shannon, thank you so much mm-hmm. for coming, babe. Yes, I, thank you for having I, me. Yeah, absolutely. I You're going to be a regular. It. I love having you here. You and I are going to try and save the world. <laughs> We're going to do our <laughs> damnedest anyways, right? Follow me on Facebook and Instagram. I'd really like to thank Jessica, my engineer, for being here. Shannon, you're the bomb. And from my heart to yours, namaste.